good to be with you here again and have the privilege to share two weeks in a row and, like Joe said, do kind of a, a mini-series. And uh, if you weren't here last week, what I w- was sharing on was what I believe is one of the most important topics for people this generation. Uh, John Mark Comer said that probably the greatest task that the church has um, Right now, the most radical thing that we can do is to teach people how to live in community, so in true relationships, and to learn how to practice the disciplines of Jesus' life. And so last week, we were uh, looking at what are the things that keep us from deep, true, intimate relationships, the kind of relationships that we're actually created for by God. And so we turn to our master teacher, Jesus, as he addresses these things in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And we're zooming in on the very first uh, part where he begins to paint a picture of what does a life look like that is pervaded with the love of God. Because when we become that kind of person, we can have the kinds of relationships, the kind of uh, community that we're actually created for that displays the very character, the nature of God. And so I really don't think there's a more important topic than this, and I really have young people in particular in heart with today's message because Jesus, as he begins to illustrate this and and, and, uh, get to the root source of what are the things that lead to breakdown in our relationships, because I don't know if you realize, we all, more than anything else, desire and want loving connection and relationship. It's the number one thing that makes people tick. And yet, even though we want it with all of our hearts, we find that they constantly break down. They constantly fall apart. And so what we see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount is getting to not just the symptoms of relationship breakdown, the breakdown of love, but he gets to what are the root causes of these things. And the first two things that he highlights are anger and lust. Dallas Willard pointed out that if we could just get rid of those two things, anger and lust, virtually all of the problems of human relationships would disappear. Not everything, of course, but that would be a good start. (laughs) And so we we looked at um, anger and uprooting anger last week, and and if you're just visiting today and you didn't hear that, you can go back on on the YouTube channel of the church and you can see that along with, of course, all the other uh, great teaching that is given here. But today we want to turn our eyes to that second root of breakdown in relationship. And so I want to start with a statement. The Bible is one long love story about the God who is a faithful husband. The Bible's one long love story about the God who is a faithful husband. And so today we're going to learn about Faithful desire as a characteristic of the kind of relationships that we are made for. And so what we're going to see is that faithfulness is the essence of the love of God that uproots the idol of lust in our hearts. So we're going to study from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 31. So if you have your Bible, you can turn it on to there and... uh, It'll be up on the screen. You can follow along. Remember, these are the words of Jesus. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. So I said at the beginning uh, last week um, that we're focusing on the root issues of what causes relational breakdown and, and looking at what does a healthy picture look like. And so I think what we see here, what we're going to find out as we go, go through this, is that the underlying picture of health that's being presented here is a picture of covenant faithfulness. That's what health looks like. Sometimes it's very easy to spot, it's much easier to spot what, uh, what sickness or, or lack of health looks like. It's much harder and there's much less agreement in the world about what should life actually be like? What is a picture of health? Well, Jesus actually offers us that. Okay, so even though I'm trying to offer you a picture of health, there's no getting away from the fact that Jesus uh, is addressing particular pathologies of relationships here, particularly sexual uh, issues. And so there's three things, okay? Three things that we're going to see here. Number one, sex is far more valuable than we think. Number two, sex is much less valuable than Christ. And number three, how faithful love divorces desire for the sake of relationship. Okay, so we need to deal... And, and sorry, like I can see some of your faces and you're like, oh my goodness, this is a fun passage, Ian. <laughs> but again, I'm sharing this because I've, I've really got young people particularly at heart, um, but really this addresses all of us in a highly sexualized world and culture. What does health look like? At this moment in history, and so the first question we need to ask here in this passage is, what exactly does Jesus mean by lust? Well, the first thing I need to tell you is that lust as a word is, is not actually a negative thing per se. Um, in Greek, it just basically means a strong desire. And so Jesus is not condemning desire in this passage because we know that he himself also had desire. This is actually the same word Jesus uses in Luke 22 when he um, is about to share the Last Supper with his disciples and he says, I have greatly desired to eat this meal with you. That's actually the same word. It could, I guess, be translated, I have greatly lusted to eat this meal with you. But that uh, might give a different connotation in English. So. <laughs> so what I'm saying is the problem is not desire in itself because the Bible is full of good desire, appeals to desire. Just read the Psalms. It's full of appeals to the desires that drive us and, and directing them towards God. Just read the Song of Solomon. And so this is not saying that if you see someone and you find them attractive that you've committed adultery 
Because here's the thing, experiencing desire is not in itself sinful. And even being tempted with desire for something wrong is not sinful because we know that Jesus was tempted and yet was without sin. So what exactly is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about a kind of desire that we choose, that we give ourselves to. A bit like anger last week, where it was, it's not just the flaring up, the experience of the emotion of anger. He's talking about a kind of anger that you stew in, that you embrace, and that eventually begins to eat you up. And so it's the similar thing here. And I think you can see that when you realize that the same word that's used here is the word that the ancient translators use um, in, in, uh, for the word covet in the Ten Commandments, when it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It's the same, uh, same word that was used to translate that. And so this isn't a question just of mere desire. It's a question of how that desire is attached to someone or something. So I want you to see that there's an intentionality to this. There's a, a seeking it out. And the point is fixating your strong desire on something or someone that you are not covenanted to. And so it gives a sense of desiring that person, not as a person, but desiring them as a thing. In the Ten Commandments, it says, do not covet your wife or your neighbor's house or their donkey. or their. It's a list of property, right? And that's weird, isn't it? Well, what's happening there is the treating of a person like a thing, the objectification, the thingification of a person. And so sexual lust is turning a person into a mere object, an object for self-gratification, sexual gratification. And so here's my, my first point that I want to put up is that we can summarize this by saying lust intentionally reduces a person to an object of sexual desire. Now, here's, here's why I think this is worth addressing. Because for a young person today, for anybody today, really, but especially for young people, we get very, very conflicting messages about this particular topic of sexuality and lust and all those things. So on the one hand, you've got in the last few years, um, you're aware of the, the hashtag MeToo movement, um, and it would agree very much with this sentiment that to objectify a woman or to objectify anyone sexually is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And so it's something that people feel very strongly about. And so rightfully so, many uh, people that have been in positions of power, who have abused that power to do this very thing, have been exposed. Um, and so there's kind of been a, a, uh, a global movement that's formed around that condemnation of sexual objectification of another person, all right? So we've got that on the one side, and that's a very strong message. But then on the other hand, we have another message that's constantly reinforced, both verbally, visually, advertising, film, all sorts of stuff, and it's this. It's the message that anything that consulting adults want to do between them is right for them to do. It's okay, including if they desire to sell their body, if they desire to make themselves an object. That's okay. As long as it's between consenting adults. And as soon as you get into, some of you 
um, you know, there's going to be this event with the nefarious movie, and, and if you know anything about the, the, uh, the sex industry globally, you, you realize that the line between consent and, uh, and, and abuse and coercion is often very, very gray. And so we know that sex sells, and so we're surrounded in our culture by endless thingification of people, endless objectification of people to sell products and satisfy cravings. And all of this, when you get down to it, it's, it's founded on the basis of what we call consent. But here's the thing. Even uh, secular feminists have begun to argue that consent is a really shaky foundation to build a sexual ethic on. Because it's so hard to determine. It's a really uh, kind of um, shaky thing. And so a lot of what has been labeled freedom since the sexual revolution in the 1960s, um, it's starting to uh, be expressed and, and shown that much of what we call that freedom has actually served to just benefit men and not the women that it supposedly freed. Mainly benefiting male desire at the expense of women. And so the result is that in our day and age, sex has just become another consumer item, just like everything else. So you've got these two. Do you see how these are completely uh, contradictory uh, statements, messages that are out there that are being proclaimed? And so if you take that those two things, and you, you push them as a kind of a world, you push them to their logical conclusion, you end up with something that can't possibly hold together. You can't have these two things at the same time. So on the one hand, it tells us, well, sex is just a meaningless act. It doesn't mean anything else than, you know, uh, than anything else you might choose to do, to freely do with your body. It's a meaningless act. And so the only rule, if that's true, the only rule is just, just avoid harm. Right? But on the other hand, it tells us, and everything reinforces to us, that sex is the pinnacle of human existence. And if you don't find the one person that you're you know, just sexually compatible with and, and your love of your life, then you cannot possibly have a fulfilled human life. I don't know if you, if you, if you pay attention, you recognize both of these messages all the time being put out there. So every movie, every show that we watch, all the songs that we are constantly talking about love and ultimately expressed in, in sexual uh, relationships as, if you don't get this thing, well then, you might as well not, not be here. It's that important, and yet at the same time we say, well, it's just meaningless. How can those two things fit together? All right, so what does Jesus say to this? Well, the first thing he's saying here is, sex is far more valuable than we think. He actually attacks both of these statements. Sex is far more valuable than we think. And I want to give you a quote from a, a, a British secular feminist uh, who she, called a, she caused a, a stir in the last couple of years with a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And I just want to read you part of her conclusion, uh, which is this. Sexual liberals came to the hubristic assumption that our society would be uniquely free from the oppression of sexual norms and can function just fine. The last 60 years have proved that assumption to be wrong. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. 
People are not products. Marriage is good. This is all informed by peer-reviewed research, but it shouldn't have to be, since this is pretty much what most mothers would tell their daughters if only they were willing to listen. This is not a Christian writer. And isn't it mind-blowing that she's coming to the conclusions based on peer-reviewed scientific research, the very things that Christianity has held to be true for thousands of years. And so, to me, it's, it's just so sadly ironic to read um, a writer like that marshalling all the latest, you know, groundbreaking research to arrive at such simple conclusions. So basically, at the end of this book, she concludes that sex really is special. Jesus elevates sex far higher than the world does because he says it's not simply a bodily function. He says it's holy because it actually reveals something of the intimacy of the Trinity. It reveals something of the character of God. And because it's so holy, and because of what it reveals about God, he designed it only to be practiced between a man and a woman who are covenanted to one another exclusively for life. And he's saying only within that bond of mutual, unconditional faithfulness do we become free to experience what sex was actually designed for. So the next point here, just to summarize that, is that sex is made to flourish within covenantal love. Here's the thing, right? It's not only that when we treat sex like a consumer product, it's not only that it's just morally wrong, it's that we don't actually enjoy it in the way that it was made to be enjoyed. We're missing out. So the standard idea, you know, these days is that people should have, you should have sex before you get married because what you need to do is you need to find out if you're compatible or not. You need to, you need to try it out, right? Here's the thing. That doesn't match what the data shows about uh, how that actually impacts the relationship. The data show that before marriage, having sex before marriage doesn't actually lead to strengthening the relationship, but to weakening it. If couples cohabitate before marriage, the studies show they're actually more likely to divorce and not less. Isn't that weird? And the surveys show that sexual relationships before marriage, uh, before marriage, they people they ask them, why are you having sex in this relationship? And the most common answer is to keep the relationship going. And so what that shows me is that there's this constant background pressure that if we don't keep going like this, then the other person's going to get dissatisfied and go find someone better. You know what that is? That's a consumer mentality. Always looking for an upgrade. Always looking for the new and better model. Always wondering if you could do better. I like how Tim Keller says that uh, finding out if you're compatible is really just a nice way of saying you're waiting to see if you can do better. <laughs> just like that author quotes, Marriage is simply the best way anyone's come up with to allow the benefits of sex to flourish while minimizing the damage it can produce. Only when it's taken out of the consumer realm and into what we call the covenant realm, 
Can it flourish in a way that most benefits men, women, and children, and actually also society in general? So even though the biblical ethic to a lot of people seems out of date, what's, what's amazing is it's actually in line with the data. And so for sex to flourish, it has to be harnessed within the proper boundaries. And that boundary is the mutual, unconditional commitment of covenant love. Only within that setting, within that commitment, where you know that the other person is with you for better or worse, richer or poorer, can you have the freedom to experience what it was actually designed to offer. And so it brings us to another interesting point about the language that Jesus uses, because there's, um, this is actually the same kind of language that the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, uses to talk about idolatry and greed. It's interesting, when the Hebrew prophets denounce Israel for worshiping other gods, most often it's couched in the language of adultery. Um, it's most often uh, couched in this language of greedy desire. And so I think what that is is an indication of what's going on at the heart level. Jesus is pointing out that simply dealing with the behavior does not lead to the goodness of a person. We saw that last week, that you could, uh, you could never commit physical adultery just like you could never commit physical murder and yet still be a horrible person, still treat people as if they were dead and still treat people as if they were objects. And so Jesus is not interested just in minimizing and, and dealing with the symptoms. He's interested with getting down to the root of what drives us to these destructive actions and uprooting them. And so we have to get to the source. And there may be some of us here who are thinking, well, you know, I'm single, I'm not married, I can't commit adultery. And so I want, I want to encourage you to think a little deeper about this because we're illustrating a kind of heart. And so this applies to you um, because Jesus uses uh, this, this same language of faithfulness from the Old Testament. It applies to married, single, and everything, uh, everything else. And so here's what he's saying. If you want to get to the root of what drives this behavior, the root of lust is actually wrong worship. The root of lust is wrong worship. Romans 1 says that God gave humanity up in the, lusts, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And if you just take porn, for example... And I'm sorry, if you really weren't expecting this this morning, I'm using a lot of, like, <laughs> uh, hopefully not too shocking language, but um, just take porn as an example. All right, so porn, I think, is the most obvious example of sex as an idol. Um, but in the, as, as kind of the Internet age advances, we're finding out more and more about exactly what it's doing to our brains as a society exactly what it's doing, how it's shaping us. And what's happening is more and more data is coming out to show that porn is shaping the minds and ways of thinking of an entire generation. It's making young people hate their bodies more than ever before. 
It's leading to the expectation of more and more degrading and violent behavior within relationships. And here's what really blew my mind when I was looking at these studies. Get this. It's leading to more and more disinterest in actual sex. More and more, young people are finding themselves uninterested in actual sexual relationships because porn is just easier. So, I mean, what is, what is an idol but something that takes the place of the real thing? It's, uh, this, is, this is what it's doing. And so, why does it do that? It's because it teaches you to be increasingly greedy, increasingly self-centered. It takes sex, which is this act of giving yourself, and it makes it this purely consumer experience. You shop for the person that, that matches what you're looking for, and then you, you, you have this completely self-centered experience, and then you turn it off. And that person ceases to exist in your mind. It's, they're complete objects. And so, if what I said at the start is true, that what we want more than anything else is relationship, is intimacy, is love, if that's actually what we want, then why does this thing that we know is so destructive to relationships, and even destructive to sex itself, why does it have such a grip on us? Why do we know that we want this, and yet we carry on with this, which we know keeps us from this? What that is, is it's showing us, this isn't about sex. This is about worship. This is about worship. We fixate on something and we say, if I don't get that, then I might as well not be here. Every single person has something that occupies that position in their heart. Beneath the behavior that dishonors a person by turning them into a thing to be used, it's a heart looking for something to worship. Something that will bring ultimate satisfaction, fulfillment, and purpose to their lives. And we use things and we use people to give us things that actually only God can give us. And that's how sex can become an idol. Even within marriage, it can become an idol. Because if you're looking to your spouse to give you things that only God can give you, you're treating your spouse like an idol. That misplaced worship, it shapes misplaced desires within us, which ultimately, when they're fully fleshed out, they lead to misplaced behavior. And it's this cycle. It's reciprocal because the behavior then goes back and influences the habits. It builds habits in us. It, brings, it builds mental pathways uh, that make that, that, that uh, behavior easier and easier to, to get into. And then it reinforces the desires, and you see, this is, this is what I'm describing is the pattern of addiction. Same thing that any drug does to, a, uh, to an addict. Same exact process. And it's really the process that uh, sin takes in our lives. And so Jesus says, you have to treat that sin. You see what he, he goes on to say? He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. What he's saying is, You've got to treat this tendency as seriously as you would a limb needing to be amputated. Why do you amputate a limb? It's not like, it's not your first choice, right? It's not the first thing you do. 
It's an emergency separation of a rotten piece of flesh that, if left unchecked, will consume the entire body. Right? And so, Jesus is saying, take that kind of attitude to separate yourself from anything that will separate you from him. Why? Not just because it's wrong, although it is. (laughs) It's not just that. He's appealing to our desire. He's saying, cut yourself off from those things because they're cutting you off from him, and he is the thing that you actually desire. Deep down, beneath it all, he is the thing that you desire above anything else. It's just that we don't know it most of the time. And so what Jesus is saying is that as valuable as sex is, as much as he has elevated it, he's saying sex is infinitely less valuable than Christ. It's much more valuable than we typically assume, and yet it's far less valuable than Christ. And so if your hand separates you from him, separate yourself from your hand. If your eye separates you from him, Separate yourself from your eye. Do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. Because as long as you're treating sex as an idol to fulfill your desire, what's happening is you're separating yourself from him. And not only that, we separate ourselves from one another. Because this pattern of objectifying, of thingifying other people, you can't have relationship on, those, on, on, on that basis. And so this is why I think Jesus goes on to talk about divorce. So it's interesting, at the time, the Jewish idiom to refer to divorce was separate your wife from your flesh. That was a kind of set phrase. And so um, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but this is very male-centered language that we find in this. It's reflecting uh, the, the, the assumptions of the time that only men could enact a divorce. Um, And so the common view at the time was that a man could divorce his wife for anything that displeased him. You just kind of hand the pink slip, and uh, that's that. All That's all he had to do, and he could remarry. And that was based on a particular interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. All right, this was a a lively debate that was happening at the time. Um, And Jesus critiques that view in Matthew 19, and he takes the view that that kind of divorce, what it's doing is idolizing selfish desire at the expense of the other person. It's idolizing desire over relationship. And so what the idol of lust does is it drives you to divorce relationships for the sake of what you desire. And people do it all the time, and sometimes they even call it love. So I'm going to, because of this love that I feel for this person, I'm going to leave my family, I'm going to leave my friends, I'm going to leave all the people that cared for me to chase after this love. And so Jesus is saying, no, that's actually not, that's not what love does. Love doesn't divorce relationships for the sake of a desire. Jesus says the next point here that love divorces desire for the sake of relationship. Love separates itself from from its desires and even sometimes good desires, not necessarily things that are attached to wrong things, but divorces itself, separates itself from that 
selfish desire for the sake of the person and the relationship before them. And I just want to mention here that as I read this passage, I think Jesus has a particular concern for women in this passage. Because almost always in this system, the victim was the woman. She'd be left unprotected, she'd be left unprovided for, and with no legal recourse. And then he says, because that divorce was bogus to begin with, what it does is it forces her into a new relationship, which is also illegitimate. And so many times, women in this position in the ancient world would be forced into selling their bodies. And so, again, it's this pattern of destruction. Now, thankfully, we, you know, in, in, uh, in at least uh, many parts of the world, that is no longer the situation. There's now many more legal protections and all those things, and we praise God for those things. But the point that Jesus is making here is that none of this was God's intent. Moses' teaching that the the people were grabbing onto was being twisted for the sake of gratifying selfish desire. And Jesus is saying, no, this was not the intent. He only allowed this to minimize the harm, but that was never God's plan. This is not a picture of health here. And so we saw last week, and and I'm, I'm... Finishing up here with the last point, we saw last week that Jesus is not giving new laws here. Um, he, he's, uh, he is demonstrating, he's illustrating what a heart of love will naturally do. He's actually illustrating, when you look at it as a whole, he's illustrating his own character. Exactly how he related to people, uh, to men and women. Um, and so, He's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's upholding the intent of everything that was in God's heart uh, since the creation. He's correcting abusive ways to treat uh, laws like divorce um, that had been used for self-serving gratification, used by men to trade up on their wives. And so that is not the heart of God. Our sexual desire and marriage is to be used in ways that demonstrate God's loving faithfulness. And so the last point here is that faithfulness is the essence of covenant love. Love does not make a person divorce relationship for the sake of desire. It makes a person divorce desire for the sake of relationship. And that is the way of the cross. This is exactly how Jesus loved us. And it's how God loved people all the way through Scripture with a kind of faithfulness that was greatly costly to himself. And the way we cultivate the kinds of relationships that actually fulfill us, we think that we've got to go out there and we've got to find the the, the person who looks the, the way we want and the personality that we want and the kind of, you know, social status that we want. And if we don't find that, then we won't find what we want. But Jesus is saying, no, the way to find what you want is to practice the kind of faithful, committed love to the people that you're in relationship with as God has demonstrated to you. And when you do that, in spite of the ways that they don't quite measure up to what you would ultimately desire, ideally desire, guess what? You begin to form the character of God in you because you're loving the way that God loves. 
God loves unconditionally. The only way to learn how to, God, how to love like God does, and therefore, is to love people that don't meet all your conditions. Otherwise, how can you possibly learn to love unconditionally? And so, that's the way that we cultivate the kinds of relationships that fulfill the great commandment. That fulfill what we're created for. And, and teach us how to love the way that God loves. And the primary way of describing how God loves in the scripture is this Hebrew word, chesed. It's used 246 times in the Hebrew Bible, and most often you'll find it translated as God's faithfulness or his steadfast love. This is the love of God that covenants to his people. The love of God that keeps his promises even when we fail on our end of the bargain. The love that time after time shows mercy and forgiveness, bearing with the sins and the faults of other people. That is the love of the covenant God. And it's the love that ultimately led Jesus to give himself entirely. Because his desire was not fixed on a certain task or a certain action. or uh, his, his desire was fixated on his bride his people. And so he gave up everything that he could have rightfully claimed for the sake of that relationship. He divorced himself from the wealth that he could have enjoyed. He divorced himself from the status and the privilege that he could have enjoyed as a, as a ruler or something like that. He divorced himself from uh, even having natural comforts of home and family and all those things. Why? Not so that he could get something, but so he could get someone so he could get his people, his bride. And that's you. If you belong to Jesus today, this is what he was pursuing. And he separated himself from every other thing so that he could have you. His bride. And so, only God's faithfulness reshapes our desires and habits. And when we're captivated by a vision of the faithful love of God in Christ, what happens is it begins to fundamentally reshape our desires. It begins to reshape our habits. And we start finding that we desire different things than we used to desire. And eventually you end up in a place where you look back on your early days or your days before following Jesus and you think, man, what did I ever see in that? What did I ever see in that person that I was chasing after and I was so fixated on? Because now you've tasted of the real thing. And so I want to finish this with a story that I told at the camp, uh, so this will be familiar to you all, but it's a story that's drawn out of Greek mythology. Uh, the ancient Greeks told of the sirens who would, they're kind of like mermaids, uh, but they would shipwreck sailors by the seductive beauty of their voices. And in Homer's, Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus has to pass by the sirens on his quest. And what he does is he asks his sailors to strap him, to tie him to the mast of the ship. And tie him to the mast and he tells them to put wax in their ears so that they, they won't hear. But he wants to hear the sirens without crashing. He wants to hear the song but not suffer the consequence. 
And I think it's exactly the picture of exactly how we try and deal with sin most of the time. Let me sail as close to the rocks as I can. Enjoy as much of the the song as I can while somehow avoiding crashing. And it's a picture of constantly battling and suffering this, this travail of our desires. But there's a better way. In the story of Orpheus, Orpheus, knowing that he has to also pass by the sirens, what he does is he hires a musician. And the musician comes on the ship with him. And he says, when the sirens begin to sing, I want you to play a sweeter tune. I want you to play a better tune. And he passes by. Why? Because the sirens were no longer the most desirable thing. The only way to defeat the siren song is to listen to a better tune. Because that robs them of their power. It's not just suffering through our lives and strapping ourselves to the mast. and It's finding the better tune that robs the other things of their false power. And so we could spend all day doing practical tips and different things, and there's, there's books that I can recommend you that will do a far better job of, of telling you the how. But what I'm here to tell you today is that the only way to address these problems, these desires that have a way of taking over our lives, is to direct our desire towards their true source which is Jesus. He's the only good thing that never comes to an end. And so when you set your desire on him, on the real thing, all of a sudden the lesser desires begin to lose their grip. When we were at camp, I would find myself hungry and desiring dinner that was like a little bit of meat and, you know, here and there. Then we come back to Prague and I have the chance to eat a big juicy hamburger. You know what? I'm not desiring the camp food anymore. <laughs> right? When you taste the better thing, that's a better example, right? Even in the Greek mythology. Um, <laughs> so here's my, my heart for you, my prayer for you, is that, that your heart, young people, uh, uh, elder people, everyone in between, um, that your heart would see the greater desirability of Jesus. That your heart would see that. And that when it sees that, all these other lesser idols would begin to lose their grip, lose their power. Because you found the real thing. That is the thing that will reshape your desire, it will reshape your habits. And you have work to do to reinforce those habits and reinforce uh, those desires. And, um, but the ultimate source is wrong worship, and that's what needs to be addressed first. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close and pray, and, and we're going to uh, share in, um, in the Lord's table this morning. Um, so I'll just, I'll just close out our message, and then um, we'll move on to that. So Father... Lord, I thank you that we, you've made us uh, with desires, with loves. Lord, it's the thing that gives our lives richness and, and joy. 
Lord, help us to see that desire is, is not the problem. It's what we're turning to to satisfy that desire. And Jesus, we recognize this morning that if you really are who you say you are, there is nothing else that could possibly satisfy the way that you do. You are the love that we were made for. So Jesus, would you give us a glimpse? If there's anyone here that has never seen your desirability and turned to you to trust you, Lord, to say, Jesus, if I don't have you, I may as well not be here. Lord, that you would give them that glimpse, that you would transform their hearts, and they would begin to chase after you as the only satisfaction we were made for. So we thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask you to empower us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Enlighten our minds. um, uh, Transform our hearts, Lord God, and empower our actions that they would build healthy habits and we would become people that love like you do. In Jesus' name, amen.